Good morning. Uh, this morning we'll be continuing our uh, sermon series for Reach, Build, Send. Um, I'm Taylor Lewis, and I will be uh, reading Acts chapter 8, 14 through 25 for us this morning. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven." For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me that the Lord, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken to the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You can go ahead and be seated. Thank you, Taylor. As Taylor mentioned, we're continuing in a series that we are wrapping around our church mission. Uh, As a church, we've identified our mission as to, we exist to reach people with the gospel, to build them as the church, and to send them into the world for the glory of God. And so that's why we're here. That's why we exist as a church, and that's what... Everything we do as a church ought to be aimed at. And so we talked last week about how we want to just give ourselves a little checkup as we get kind of to the end of a school year and transition into summer. And we're going to take the month of May and and just walk through this mission statement and, and pick apart each phrase a little bit to really ask ourselves as a church, how are we doing? But part of that is asking yourself as an individual, how are you doing and how am I doing? at reaching people with the gospel, as we looked at last week, and then this week, building them as the church. And so we were in Acts 8 last week, and uh, Taylor just read that for us. We saw that Philip preached the gospel in a land called Samaria, and many people were converted. And so now we're kind of in the now what phase of the story. What happens next? How do you build these new believers into a, a church? How do you build the church. And that, that language of building the church is actually all throughout the New Testament. We see it in a number of places. But the first time and the most consequential time it appears is actually on the lips of Jesus himself. And you don't have to, to look it up right now, but Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus, in the context of referring to some other things, looks to his disciples and he says, I will build my church. And I think that's a very important word to frame what we're doing here is as we talk about Midlands Church trying to build as a church, we have to recognize that this church isn't ours. It's not mine. It's not yours. It belongs to the Lord Jesus. And and we do what we do on the foundation of his promise that he himself will build his church. And so the way I want us to think about this today as we look at that passage Taylor read is 
what exactly does Jesus use to build his church? I mean, what are the raw materials that go into that building process? And so we're going to have four basic points, and each one is going to begin with the Lord builds his church through. And so the first one is this, as we look at verse 14, the Lord builds his church through leaders. The Lord builds his church through leaders. So we heard there in verse 14, Peter and John, the apostles of Jesus, they come from Jerusalem down to Samaria to provide leadership and to give some guidance to these new believers. And in the passage, we see them teaching, we see them rebuking, we see them preaching the gospel. And most significantly, we see them laying hands on these new Christians that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And we're going to try to unpack that a little bit in a minute because that's a weird moment. But what we see them doing there principally is providing leadership. And I think what they're doing is, is kind of exemplifying what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian church about in Ephesians chapter 4, when he said, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, that's the church, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church there as well. So in other words, God appoints leaders in various capacities to perform various functions in order to equip the church to do the work of building up the church. This is one way in which Jesus builds his church. He sends leaders to equip the church to build itself up. And as the rest of that passage in Ephesians 4 makes clear, what you're building yourself up to is maturity. Stability, the, the ability to withstand the, the attack of the enemy, to weather difficulties and difficult seasons, to, to honor Christ in the midst of suffering. That's what we want to become. That's who we want to be. And to get there, the scripture teaches us we need leaders. That's, that's part of who Jesus uses and what Jesus uses to build his Church. So here at Midlands, we have our leadership structured in a couple of different ways. Our, our primary and, and, and key leaders are our, our elders. We have, we have four of us. Uh, we have then our deacons who have particular areas of service. We have our community group leaders that give leadership and oversight to particular groups within the body. And then we have folks that lead ministry teams like missionary care and, and our operations team and things like that, all helping the church to function so that hopefully... We're building up the body of Christ together. But, but one of the things I, I think is always so important to notice about Ephesians 4.12 is that the purpose of those leaders is not to do the work of the ministry themselves. It, it's, it's never meant to be a one-man show. It's never meant to be about a pastor holding all the cards and making all the decisions and doing all the work of the ministry. The, the pastor and the leader's role is to actually equip the church to build itself up, to grow into maturity as we encourage and strengthen one another. So as leaders, we try to share responsibility. Uh, we try to uh, put each other in positions where we can complement one another here at Midlands. And I, I don't mean that we say nice things about each other, although the folks that are in leadership here are nice people. But by complement, I just mean we fit together. Right? And so we try to find, you know, how has God gifted you and how has God gifted this person and how can we get the work of the ministry together by sharing the, the load? It's been a part of our DNA as a church from our founding and it, it, I think it's a particularly healthy part of our church even today. And so we see it modeled here in part in this, uh, in this scene as Peter and John come down and they give some leadership to the church that's developing there in Samaria. So the Lord builds his church through leaders. 
The second thing is the Lord builds his church through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is central to building the church. In fact, the efforts of the leaders are futile apart from his work in our lives, through our lives, in spite of our lives, through your lives. It's, it's the Spirit who brings about the building of the church, even as he uses people to accomplish his purposes. And that's why it's so significant here in this passage. That's why it's such a big issue that the Samaritans did not receive the Spirit at conversion. At, you may, I don't know if you caught that or not, but in the middle of uh, verse 15, it says that Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Spirit. And then in verse 16, it says, For he, the Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So then the apostles laid their hands on them, and they, these new believers in Samaria, received the Spirit. Now, this is an odd moment in the Scriptures. Uh, sometimes it's tempting to sort of just glaze over things like this and get to the easier stuff to understand. But I want to take a, a minute to try to make sense of this, because I think there's some real important truths we see going on in this story, even as it's kind of complex and odd to understand. But I also don't want to get lost in the weeds. So just hang with me. And, and here, here is what I think we should take from this. And then I'm going to try to explain what I mean by this uh, in a minute. But I think the two important truths that this scene illustrates is the necessity of the Spirit of God and the importance of unity among the people of God. I think that's what's going on in verse 15, 16, and 17 is we're seeing in Samaria in the first century how important the Holy Spirit is in building the church and how important unity is among the people of the church. Now, let me try to explain where I'm coming from on that. So in this story, it's clear that the Samaritans believe in Jesus through the preaching of Philip. That's verse 12. We looked at it last week. They, they hear the gospel. They hear about the kingdom. And it says very clearly they believed. And typically what you see in the scriptures is that when a person believes, that person receives the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in them and empower them in their life. But it seems pretty clear from verses 15, 16, and 17 that that didn't happen to these folks. And so the question is, why? Is it because this is the normal way things happen? And typically there should be some separation between believing in Jesus and receiving his spirit. Some would say so. Or is it because something unique is happening in this historical moment that Luke is reporting? And I think that's actually the case. And so to answer that and back that up a little bit, we need to look at a couple passages in the rest of the New Testament. Again, we're not going to go far into the weeds here, but I just want to back this up a little bit. What we, what we see in the rest of Scripture, though, is that typically when a person believes in Jesus, God sends the Spirit of God to dwell within that person and it all happens together. There's not this separation in the rest of the New Testament. And you see it in places like Acts 2.38. So Peter is preaching. He's preaching to a lot of people. And he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what do you do to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? You repent. You be baptized. You believe in Jesus. You experience forgiveness you receive the Spirit. It's all wrapped up together. There's no sort of separation here. In Romans 8, Paul goes as far as to say, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to God. 
And so if you don't have the Spirit dwelling in you, you don't have the Spirit convicting you and empowering you and shaping you and, and enlightening your mind to understand the truth of the Scripture, Paul says you don't know God. You don't belong to Him because that's part and parcel of coming into a relationship with Him. So it seems, I think, all throughout the New Testament that Christians believe on Jesus and they receive the Spirit all at the same time. So then we have to say, okay, now what in the world is going on in Samaria in this story we read? Because it seems that they clearly didn't. And so I think it's best for us to view what we read here as, as kind of a weird and abnormal situation. And in fact, you could say maybe the apostles come down to visit for this very reason. They've been preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And in some way, they've recognized that as people have believed, they have received the Spirit at that moment. And so then they hear from Philip, these people in Samaria are believing the gospel, but they're not receiving the Spirit. And you can imagine a conversation where they say, Peter, John, could you come check this out and help us make some sense of that? So maybe that's why they're there. And if so, maybe we should ask the question, why would God do that? In this situation, I mean, why would he withhold his spirit from these new converts? And the text doesn't say, right? So we have to come up with an educated guess of sorts. But I think there's a, a plausible reason. When we think about who we're dealing with here in the historical background, I mean, we talked about this last week, summarized by John in John chapter 4. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. These people don't interact. They don't spend time together. They have centuries of rivalry and discord that separates them. And now a Jew from Jerusalem, Philip, has gone into Samaria and told the Samaritans about the Jewish Messiah. And, Samar and some Samaritans are saying, we believe in him and we want to follow him. So in this moment, you've got this, this cultural issue taking place where two people come in from two different sides of the track are all of a sudden saying they believe in the same thing. And so how is this new church in Samaria going to overcome centuries of rivalry and discord with the folks in Jerusalem? Now, one easy solution would be, let's just do two churches. We could have a Jewish church. We could have a Samaritan church. And the Samaritan church could do things the Samaritan way. And the Jewish church could do things the Jewish way. But it seems that there's something fundamentally flawed about that from the perspective of the Lord. And so I think what is going on here is the Lord realizes he would not be honored by the people in Samaria just starting a Samaritan church and going this way, while the people in Jerusalem have a Jerusalem church and go this way. He wants to see his body unified. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 4, in that same context I referenced earlier, there's one body. There's one spirit. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. So whether Jew or Samaritan, we all belong to Jesus. And as a part of that belonging, we're called to maintain the unity of the spirit. So what Ephesians 4, 3 says. In other words, you can't build a church in discord. And so perhaps... The Lord withheld the Spirit from these converts for this very reason, right? So that they would actually receive the Spirit from the Jewish apostles, signifying their unity with the Jerusalem church. 
you know, if they if they just receive the Spirit as soon as Philip preaches, there's a there's a possibility that they go their own way and the churches are never united. They just live in discord in perpetuity and keep going in their opposite directions. But by not sending the Spirit when they believed, it forced the Jerusalem apostles down into Samaria. It forced them to place their hands on these people, their new brothers and sisters in Christ. And it forced these Samaritans to identify themselves with these people in Jerusalem that just a few months ago, they hated. And everybody in their world hated. And everybody knew that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And now all of a sudden, these Jewish Christians are in town and they're saying, the very best thing we have going for ourselves, we want to give to you. And the Samaritans are saying, we want to come up under your leadership and we want to show publicly that we're a part of you. We've got centuries of having no dealings together, but now we're in Christ. There's a new unity here and that unity is affected by the Spirit. So that's, that's what I think is going on here. I, I like how uh, J.I. Packard put this. He said, this is at best a guess <laughs> and it's okay to say that. He said, but I think it's a rational and reverent guess as to what's going on here. And sometimes that's the best we can do. You know, I think we read the scripture, we see what's there, we try to make sense of it. And sometimes the best we can do is, is, is guess at exactly what the Lord was doing here. What seems to be clear is that Jesus builds his church through the Holy Spirit. And remember the two points I said at the beginning of this, the, the, one of the main functions of the Spirit in the church is to create and maintain unity. So I think in this scene, we have this picture of the importance of the Spirit and the importance of unity in the church. So what does all that mean for Midlands? None of us are Samaritans. <laughs> and so we don't have this sort of history, so to speak. But is it really that foreign to us? This idea that there might be people who look a little different and talk a little different and kind of have their own history and we have our own history and we kind of know we don't really do things together. We have no dealings with one another. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves bowing the knee to Jesus and looking to the same cross for salvation. And then we look around and we find we've got brothers and sisters in Christ that don't look like us and don't vote like us and don't talk like us and they don't come from the same kind of families as us and they're, they're different from us. And we have a decision to make in that moment. Are we going to let those old lines live on and continue to have no dealings with one another? Or are we going to be united by the Spirit of God? And I think what's going on here is a, a picture of how our unity in the Spirit must transcend our differences. And the differences we experience today are not the same differences they experienced then. But if we think we have no differences, we're not watching our world very closely at all. So Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to build his church. And I think a key function of the Spirit is to bring unity to the church. Now, that was simple enough. Now let's talk about this magician, right? <laughs> this is like a really complicated passage. So uh, Jesus uses uh, leaders to build his church. He uses the Spirit to build his church. And then thirdly, Jesus uses truth to build his church. So down in verse 18, we hear about this guy named Simon, and we met him last week. Uh, he, he's a, he was called a magician. Uh, you need to know magicians in the first century world are not walking around pulling rabbits out of hats. This is more like a sorcerer 
type guy. He would have claimed to have the ability to heal people. He would claim to have the ability to curse people. Uh, in Samaria, he was recognized as great. That's what the passage tells us. He has a reputation. And last week we read about in the beginning of this chapter that when Philip preached the gospel to the Samaritans, he believed. And it seems to suggest he was baptized. Like he made a profession of faith. But he's got a lifetime of going town to town and winning approval and making money off of his tricks. And he sees these two guys, Peter and John, come into town, lay hands on these people, and their lives are transformed. And Simon wants in on that action. He thinks, I think I want a piece of that. And so there's this moment here as we examine Simon where we wonder if his faith is sincere. And the text, again, just doesn't tell us. We don't know exactly. Uh, is this the, the sort of reveal that his profession of faith that we read about in the previous paragraph was actually false? Or does this just show how little he understood at this moment? I mean, Randy is talking about these guys that he's shared the gospel with for years. You don't go from knowing nothing about Jesus and rejecting him as king to in a moment understanding theology and knowing how to act as a Christian. So maybe he's just a really, really young believer. And in his mind, this makes sense. Maybe it just reveals that his profession of faith and baptism was insincere. And it's just a warning to us that you can walk the walk a bit and you can go down the path, but at some point your heart will be exposed. Again, I, I just don't know. It doesn't tell us. But I think either way, we can look at Simon and we can see how easy it is to pursue the things of God for worldly motivation. Because Simon looks on this scene and he's like, I think I could get something from this. I could use this spiritual power these guys seem to have and I could get something out of it. And I think that's actually very easy for us to do regardless of where we're at. Whenever I think of this idea of using spiritual things for worldly gain, I always think about this guy in Kentucky uh, at the church I served at for a number of years or in the town I served at for a number of years. So I I, I used to serve on staff at a church in Kentucky, and it was the, the largest church in that town. And I mention that only because it's a part of this, this story. And there was this guy who did not go to the church except about every other October. And every other October, we would see this guy come in, and he would come to our 11 o'clock service, which was our fullest service. And he would always show up about five minutes late. This was a weird church. They said they would start at 11 and they started at 11. I don't know what that was about, but people showed up beforehand and they started. At, it was weird. I'm still trying to understand it. But they started at 11. We started at 11. And um, this guy would come in at 11.05. And he would come all the way to the front. Another really weird thing. Um, so <laughs> we don't have any of these people here. Uh, he would come all the way to the front. Now, why would a guy come to church every other October to the largest church in town, to the fullest service, and show up a few minutes late and walk to the very front of the room? Well, it would be a great idea if you happened to be up for re-election. And that, that was the case. So every October, we'd see this. I can see this guy's face. We'd see this guy. And I was like, there he is. There he is. He's, he's walking to the front of the room. 
He's going to sit right up front. He's going to clap. If you're preaching, he's going to laugh at your jokes. If you're leading worship, he's going to raise his hand. Because in that context, and it's not hard for us to imagine this, in that context, it helped his electability to look like a person of faith who shared values with all these people at this large church in this town. He was viewing these spiritual things as a means for worldly gain. I don't know where his heart was. I don't know where Simon's heart was in this moment. But I know what Peter thought about this. (laughs) And if you look, you don't have to do a lot of research to understand Peter's point. Look at verse 20. This is what he says to Simon. Simon says, hey, can I have some of that power? Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. In short, he says, to hell with you and your money. That's what he says. Like, there is no place for this. He says, your heart is not right before God. And you have no part in this matter. You do not understand what just happened. You think we came to town with some power and some tricks to gain a crowd. And we, we are experiencing this transformation of who we are that is so far beyond your capacity right now. You have no part in it. So don't get near us with your money. He calls Simon to repentance. Now, what Peter's doing there is actually what Paul calls speaking the truth in love. (laughs) It sounds a little hard-edged, but that's what he's doing. And whether Simon is insincere or just immature, Peter is willing to tell him the truth. He's willing to look a guy in the face and say, listen, that kind of thinking comes straight from the pits of hell. And that's where it will lead you if you stay on this path. And Paul says, we all should talk like this. Every one of us, the whole church. And back back in Ephesians 4 now, Ephesians 4 is a good passage to kind of help you understand what you're reading in Acts 8, I think. So I'm quoting it now for the third time. Ephesians 4, 15 I'm going to pare down some of the phrases. Paul says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, the whole body, the body is the church, the whole body makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So how is it that the whole body, that the whole church helps build the whole church? Paul says it's when we give voice to the things we see and we speak the truth to one another in love. For some of us, this is really difficult to do. And do you know why? For some of you, it's because you're too nice. You're just too nice. You don't want to cause a stir. You don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And so you're in a crowd and somebody makes an off-color joke and you just kind of roll your eyes. You think, you know. And I'm not talking about you know, the unbelieving friend who doesn't know the Lord and just quite frankly doesn't know any better. I'm talking about a brother, sister in Christ in, in this scene. Or you're talking to a friend from Midlands and they're telling you about their plan, about what they want to do. And you think, oh, this is a bad idea. This is a train wreck wait, waiting to happen. Like you can see how foolish their plan is. And you think, oh, bless their heart. I'll pray for them. Rather than jumping in front of them and saying, brother, don't do that. Stop before you can't turn back. Or maybe someone shares their thoughts on a particular subject and it, it sounds especially 
progressive and contemporary and on point for our times. But you think, that's not what the Bible says. And you think, but I don't want to get in a fight about this. I don't want to debate this stuff. I, I, I just look the other way. And all the while, the church suffers and remains immature and fails to grow up because you and I don't tell the truth to each other. We see things, but we don't want to say things about what we see. And often it's because we're just too darn nice. <laughs> we just don't want to hurt each other. But part of this admonition in Ephesians 4 from Paul, and I think part of this scene we're witnessing in Acts 8, is that sometimes the most loving thing you can do is bring the darkness into light and combat the lies with some truth and say, brother, this is wrong. Friend, you have to stop. This is going to destroy you. And actually, I love you too much to stand on the sidelines and just watch you go by toward that pit. I'm going to do everything I can to get in front of you. I had a friend that used to say, I remember he said this about a friend of mine. It was just so on point. He said he needs someone who's willing to risk their relationship with him to help him see what he doesn't see. That's always stuck with me. Because what I find is when I don't do that, it's because I care more about the relationship. I don't want to risk it. I like this person. <laughs> I like this person liking me. I like having a friend and, and casual and, and being comfortable and I don't want to risk that relationship, you know, by, by stepping out of turn. Now, that doesn't mean that we become each other's police. <laughs> it doesn't mean that every single thing, I mean, we're doing this with wisdom and we're doing this with love. We're speaking the truth in love. But I know you guys, and I know most of you are going to fail on the side of being too nice than too harsh. You just are. And I will too. And so I think from time to time, it's good for us to see these things in the scripture and say, look, this is a part of being the body. This is how the church builds itself up. We look around at each other's lives and we attempt to speak the truth in love when appropriate, when we have the right relationship, when it's a wise thing to do. We do it in the most loving and kind and caring way possible, but we do it because we don't want to see that path come to its logical end. And sometimes we're going to see things that other people don't see. And Jesus is actually going to use that to build his church. So Jesus uses truth to build his church. And then here's the fourth one in brief. Jesus uses the gospel to build his church. And so verse 25, it talks about the apostles remaining there for some time. They speak the word of the Lord. It gives us this kind of snapshot of the Lord building his church. Disciples are teaching disciples here. And then that process continues as they journey back to Jerusalem. They're like Philip and the people that got cast out. At wherever they go, they're telling other people about Jesus. And we see God building his church through their witness as they continue through Samaria. And by the way, I'm not injecting that language into this. It's actually what Luke tells us in the next chapter. So this is Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. That's his sum of what's going on by the end of Acts 9. Now remember, at the end of Acts 7, the church only existed in Jerusalem. But they bore a commission to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And I told you guys last week, we're kind of jumping in at this moment when the witness first begins to spread outside of the city. And then by the end of Acts 9, Paul's able to say, now the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria is being built up and it's at peace. And they're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they are multiplying. So we see the Lord building his church through people reaching people with the gospel. And I think that naturally connects to this emphasis we are doing this month of asking ourselves, who's your one? Now, who, is, who is that person whom you are praying for, that you're intentionally investing in, you're seeking to engage with the gospel? And as you're doing that, recognize that you're not doing that as a lone ranger. You're doing that as a part of the church. We're doing this together. You may be solo in the conversation, but we're behind you. We're praying for you. And we're wanting to help you in whatever way we can in the, in the process. Because as a church, we want to reach people with the gospel, and then we want to build them as the church. And we see how the two connect. So just one thing we're adding to the conversation is uh, we put up a chalkboard in the back. You don't have to turn around and look at it. I promise you it's back there. Uh, it says, who's your one at the top? And I would just invite you before you go today uh, to take a moment and put the first name of the person uh, whom you're praying for and whom you're seeking to invest in. Put, put their first name on the chalkboard. And, you know, the rest of us, if, if you think of it, take a, a picture of that on your way out and, and let's pray for each other. And we don't have to know who that person is or who is praying for them and who's, you know, how the dots are connecting. Uh, but we can pray for people. We can put the names of people before the Lord and we can say, would you empower us as a church to go and reach these people with the gospel? Would you even build us up as a church through this? Would you strengthen us as a family through these efforts? And so I'd invite you to do that. Uh, today, you could do that while we're taking communion now or after the service, but we are going to close in communion as we do each week. And uh, I, I just want to remind us that as we go to the communion table, uh, we're once again affirming the things we believe and, and we're committing ourselves. Actually, those of you who are part of Midlands, we're committing ourselves to these things here. You know, like we're attempting to be a church together. We're not just going to follow Jesus, but we're actually going to follow Jesus as one. We're trying to do that as a church family. And there are actually few moments that we feel more like a family and where the lines are more clearly drawn than when we go to communion. Because uh, what we say every week is, you know, if you're here today and you are a Christian, if you're following Jesus, you're trusting in him, you're walking in obedience after him by the power of the spirit in your life, then we invite you to take communion with us as we celebrate his death and burial res resurrection. We commemorate that through communion. But, but if you find yourself on the outside of that looking in, if you're here this morning and you would say, yeah, I, I don't think I am a Christian. I don't think I am a believer. I don't know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We'd actually ask you not to participate in this and, and not because we want you to feel left out or we want to be rude or unkind, but we, we just believe this is genuinely an experience that signifies our faith in a way that it just wouldn't be appropriate for you to do if, if you don't possess that faith. And so we're going to sing a song. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to begin to sing. And, and those of us who are walking with the Lord, you're welcome to go to the back and, and take communion. It's, it'll be available. Uh, if, if you'd consider yourself on the outside of that, I would invite you to take this time and consider what we've talked about this morning. Maybe think about 
you know, these, these people that would, would prioritize truth over comfort, <laughs> that would, would aim at following the Lord instead of their own desires. And I'll be the first to tell you there's nothing special about any of us. Uh, we, we just really believe we found a treasure here. And we're trying to do the best we can to, to steward it well because, uh, because God is good. He's been good to us. He's been good to you. And so if, if you'd like to talk more about that, if you want somebody to just help you process through that, I know there are a lot of folks in here that'd be glad to do that. I just want to also give the invitation. I'd be happy to as well. You're welcome to, to find me after the service and we can talk some more. But let me pray for us and then we will take communion together. Lord, thank you for your love and kindness and your mercy, Lord. Thank you that you, you do give your spirit to your people. We would be nothing apart from his work in transforming us. Thank you that you are the God of yesterday, the God of today, and the God of tomorrow. And I thank you for this church. I thank you for the people that are Midlands Church, the people that have come and the people that, are, that have gone, the people that are here now. Lord, I, I thank you for this body, and I thank you for the way you have built us up, the way you've supplied leaders to guide us, care for us. I thank you for your Spirit's work among us. Thank you for your truth, and we do the best we can to rally around each week. I pray that you would help us to apply that truth in one another's life, lives uh, to the best of our ability as we walk with your spirit, Lord, and I thank you for your gospel, this good news that Jesus has died in our place, that he has risen from the dead, that he is seated at your right hand, he is reigning as Lord over all. Lord, help us to get our lives in step with those truths. Help us as individuals, help us as a church to grow into maturity for your glory. We pray these things in his great name. Amen.